Welcome to the Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the August 2015 issue of NCT is Nutrition Therapy and Chronic Disease States. So joining me today is Suzanne Michelle, the co-author of the paper, Nutrition Management of Cystic Fibrosis in the 21st Century, which is published in the August 2015 NCT issue. Suzanne Michelle, MPH, R.D. LDN is a clinical assistant professor at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. So thank you, Suzanne, for joining me today. Um, as you and your co-author mentioned in your article, it seems like the advances in the treatment of cystic fibrosis has resulted in increased life expectancy of individuals who are afflicted with cystic fibrosis. So because of this, nutrition support practitioners like myself, who may only care for adult patients, may not have had much experience in treating patients with CF, and so now we find ourselves providing therapy to those patients who are adults now with CF. So in our discussion today, I kind of want to explore some of those concepts of providing nutrition therapy to patients with CF. And before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask you, Suzanne, if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share. I am a speaker for all three of the enzyme companies and an advisor to MDW Nutritionals. Thank you, Suzanne. So I want to kind of start out in the beginning of your paper. You talk about how malnutrition is a common side effect of, of CF or cystic fibrosis. So what are some of the main causes of malnutrition that occur in this specific patient population? Thank you. That's a, a very good question. And first, I'd like to say that cystic fibrosis is no longer a pediatric disease, that almost 50% of the patients in the United States are now 18 years and older. So it's very much an adult disease in addition to the pediatric disease. In answer to your question about malnutrition, and that is without proper care, malnutrition can be a common side effect of CF. And it certainly was many years ago when effective enzymes were not available. But once enteric-coated enzymes became available in the early 70s, there is really no reason for malnutrition. But it still can occur. Persons who have CF need to take their enzymes every time they eat or drink anything with fat or protein. And if enzymes are missed, the person will malabsorb almost all the nutrients. So today we're still challenged to help those who have CF obtain optimal weight, height, and vitamin and mineral levels. Um, with the emphasis, though, over the years, the median BMI percentile for children and the median BMI for adults based on the data in the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation registry has been improving. But it still is not at what would be expected for the non-CF population. So we do have a ways to go to make sure all of the people who have CF are obtaining optimal weight, height, an optimal BMI percentile and BMI plus normal vitamin and mineral levels. One of the things that we struggle with sometimes with these patients is that we can determine nutrient needs, maybe through predictive equations or even measure their needs for resting energy expenditure, 
but how do we really account for the losses that you associate with pancreatic insufficiency and malabsorption in this group of patients? Quite a challenge. The best one can do is use the information available through research, but even so, persons who have CF, each person is different from the next, and their energy needs are dependent on the severity of their lung disease, the extent of their malabsorption, other complications such as CF-related diabetes or liver disease, and certainly for those who need to have a catch-up weight gain. So it is very hard to work with a very specific predictive equation. Pancreatic insufficiency and malabsorption, not easy to measure unless you want to do fecal fat studies, which aren't done frequently. What most dietitians will do is look at where the patient is at today, provide the intervention, and see if that accounted for weight gain all other things being equal, assuming that the patient is adherent to the therapy. Some of the equations say that the energy needs are anywhere from 1.2 to 2 times the DRI for energy. But the best one can do, I think, is actually watch your patient. And those of us taking care of people who have CF on an outpatient basis see those patients regularly, so we are able to do that. But it is tough. It is tough, and every patient is different, depending on all those variables. You kind of alluded to the pancreatic insufficiency, and a lot of these patients can have gastrointestinal symptoms. So I guess one part of the question would be, how common is the pancreatic insufficiency, and are there different levels of pancreatic insufficiency within the CF population? And then on top of that, are there some other common GI symptoms that patients with CF have and what would be the typical problems, the causes, and their treatments? So if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I would say the majority of persons who have CF are either born pancreatic insufficient or develop it in the first two years of life. That being said, a person can become pancreatic insufficient really at any time in their life. And patients who are pancreatic sufficient and who develop pancreatitis may actually burn out their pancreas and become pancreatic insufficient. The number of patients who were pancreatic insufficient, again, looking at the CF registry, the number of patients have actually dropped. So in 1998, 96% of all individuals with CF who were in the CF Foundation registry were taking enzymes. In 2013, that number was 87%. And that is reflecting newborn screening that is picking up many variations of CF. So that some patients may have the pulmonary problems and some patients may have the genetics for CF but are actually quite healthy. So I think we're going to be seeing that number change over the years. Also, we're very fortunate now that we have a test called the fecoelastase, which makes testing for pancreatic insufficiency much easier than it was in the past. In the past, we depended upon symptoms to diagnose pancreatic insufficiency. And often, those symptoms were not reliable, but we still use those symptoms at least to see how patients are doing and to adjust enzymes. So every time a patient comes into 
clinic, they're asked about their bowel movements, and patients are really quite comfortable talking about this because they've been asked this now since the day they were born. Their parents were asked, and now they're being asked. So they're asked if there's any discomfort following eating or drinking a drink such as a milkshake or milk or any fat-containing drink. The number of bowel movements they have a day. Are the bowel movements foul-smelling? Do the bowel movements float? Are they large, unformed? Do you ever see oil slips on the top of the water in the toilet or a ring around the toilet bowl? Or do you have excessive bowel-smelling gas? So it's important to ask these questions specifically because if you just ask, how's your stomach, the patient might just reply, fine. So those are the kinds of questions to ask somebody who has CS. Looking at an, another issue is I think when a lot of us think about CF and malabsorption, we're going to think of the fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies. What other micronutrients can specifically be affected by CF? I know that as a follow-up question, I want you to kind of address some of the special CF-specific vitamin and mineral products that you have mentioned actually in, a, in Table 4 in your paper, which I encourage all our readers to look at. So what characteristics of those supplements make them advantageous for patients who have CF? Well, I think almost all nutrients are impacted by CF at some level. Perhaps not the water-soluble vitamins, but certainly the fat-soluble vitamins and minerals. So if you're malabsorbing, you probably are losing minerals such as iron, zinc, and calcium in your stools. Also, people who have CS lose a tremendous amount of salt in their sweat. So people who have CF need to get a lot of salt in their diet. So for babies, the recommendation is an eighth of a teaspoon or 13 mil equivalents up to six months of age, and then a quarter teaspoon, assuming the infant is on the growth curve. For older children and adults, they're recommended that they eat a diet high in salt and have the salt shaker right next to their plate so that they're getting enough salt. Without added salt, the trigger to drink and the trigger for thirst won't be activated and the person will not drink enough. And if the patient does not drink enough, they can get GI complications due to dehydrated stool. So liberal use of salt all year long, especially in hot weather, is very important. The idea that using sports drinks is the answer really isn't sufficient. And there is a study that shows you actually need to add some salt to the sports drinks to get the sodium up high enough. The need for iron, you would only give iron to somebody if they were shown to be iron deficient. And the problem in CF is patients can have anemia of chronic inflammation. So it really is important that they be diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia. And zinc can be prescribed if you think a patient is in need of zinc. And it's usually a six-month trial of zinc. And signs of that might be a loss of appetite or poor growth. And calcium is managed the same way we manage calcium for the general population. Now, about the vitamins that are designed for persons who have CF, and as you said, I would recommend that people look at 
table four. The vitamins are higher in fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. And they also contain all of the water-soluble vitamins plus zinc. And one company has a product that contains a higher amount of vitamin D in its froth gel so that it meets the recommendations of the CF Foundation that is shown in Table 5 of the paper. I think another challenge that comes up a lot of times, Suzanne, is if you have persons with CF who require tube feeding and how do you deal with providing pancreatic enzymes. So what can you tell our listeners about that topic with enteral formula selection and how to dose and deliver pancreatic enzymes? It's not such an easy answer, and I mean that truly. It really is not an easy answer. If you're talking about an inpatient, then I would recommend a semi-elemental product. But if you're talking about an outpatient, then insurance becomes an issue. And many insurance companies will not pay for tube feedings. So then a basic formula may be the one that you go with because it's less expensive. That being said, with any of the formulas, your person who with a tube feeding has to take their enzymes. And there's very little research regarding how much enzyme you need with a tube feeding because Unless it's a bolus tube feeding, the tube feeding is going in much more slowly than if you were eating. But what many registered dietitians will do is give a snack dose at the beginning of the feeding. If the patient wakes up in the middle of the night, uh, they would get another dose. And then if they wake up in the morning and feeding has just ended, they'll get another dose. And we encourage taking the enzymes by mouth. And the majority of patients can take them by mouth. But for those patients who cannot take them by mouth, there are many ways to give enzymes that have been worked out by dietitians. And one of the easier ways, and I know you are not supposed to crush the enzyme beads, but to crush them with a pill crusher, put the powder in the bag with the formula, let it sit for about 20 minutes, and you've essentially made an elemental formula because you've pre-digested the formula. Now, if somebody's getting a bolus feeding during the day, and, and some patients do take a bolus feeding during the day, the dietitian can work out the enzyme needs based on the grams of fat in the bolus feeding. And the usual dose is 2,000 to 4,000 lipase units per gram of fat. And they would just calculate what that would equal in the enzyme the patient takes. So tube feedings are definitely a challenge if the patient cannot take enzymes by mouth. I want to add a question to that. Is there any benefit in using the non-enteric coated enzymes versus the enteric coated enzymes if you have to crush it and deliver it with the tube feeding? It's a bit easier to use a non-enteric coated enzyme to crush it. One has to be careful not to inhale it so you would wear a, a mask when you're crushing it. But it is definitely easier to, to crush those tablets. Thank you. Suzanne, before we close, I just want to find out if there's any additional comments or any additional information you'd like to share with our, our listeners today. 
I'd like to encourage any dietitian who's listening to this and is not affiliated with the CF Center and finds that he or she has a person who has CF under their care in the hospital to find a CF Center and give a call and talk to the dietitian if you have any questions. He or she would be very, very happy to help you. And you can find any center in the United States by going on the CF Foundation website and, and just looking for CF Center and calling the number and asking to speak to the dietitian. And also, I'd like to say how important it is that persons who have CF maintain a normal weight and normal growth. There's a direct correlation between BMI or BMI percentile and lung function. And there's also been research that shows that better growth in the first year and year two of life results in better health well into the teenage years. So nutrition is so very important from day one all through life for anybody who has CF. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I appreciate your sharing your expertise with our readers, and I encourage our readers to make sure you look up this article in the August 2015 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. And I'd like to thank you for joining us today.